Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Ormo campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. Uh, it's, I, I want to thank Andrew for that welcome today too. I, I had a real pleasure of being here just over two months ago, actually. Um, I know that COVID's a bit of a bummer. We're sick of talking about it, but kind of, I kind of like it because it means I get to come to Ormo a bit more. <laughs> um, so I, I'm not going to wish the pandemic would go longer. I'm not going to wish that at all. But if it gets me to come here to be with you, I'm very thankful for that because I love coming here. I love, it feels like home and family to me. It feels like the church I grew up in. And uh, I'd just love to share some family news of my own, actually, if that's okay. Mercy and I did something really dumb last year. We, along with the rest of Australia, decided to buy a house. It was a long 18-month journey. We, we put offers on 11 houses, got rejected 11 times, and on a number 12, we finally got a house. So we're now living at the back of Slacks Creek, just behind Ikea, for those of you playing at home. And uh, we have a lot of people we want to invite over to, to, to share the good news of it. we have got a house. Actually, our whole life group, uh, James and Sophia, we're in their life group. Uh, I think between all of us, I think five out of the six couples in our life group all bought a house. I think four of the couples have had babies in the last kind of two years or so. It's, there's a lot going on in our life group. But we want to have everyone over after church to invite them across and say, let's just celebrate what's going on. So I said, hey, after church at Mackenzie, I'm going to invite you over and I want you to follow these directions. See, when you drive out of the driveway at McKenzie, you go up the driveway, up to the left, you kind of bank around to the left, get to the end of the street, turn right, get up to the top of the lights at the top of the street there. That's Mount Cravat Capella Bar Road, and you're going to be waiting there for a long time at those lights. They take forever. Once you do that, turn right, head up Mount Cravat Capella Bar Road, over past the survey, down the hill, towards the red light camera. Now, you don't want to go through the red light camera speeding because you always get caught there every single time, but don't, turn, don't, don't go through them, go left anyway, onto the gateway motorway. Head for about 3.5k down the gateway. Uh, keep going, you're going to take the next exit, but don't take the Rochdale exit, take the Pacific motorway exit. So you're going on the Pacific motorway, rocket along there, keep going, keep going, keep going, for about another 5.5k. You want to take that exit, which is a weird exit, you go off that really quickly, kind of go off the exit to the roundabout, turn left. You're coming back actually now up the way you were just coming along the highway, the opposite direction. You want to go over the bridge that you just came under, then you want to curve around to the left down to the roundabout and you want to put your right indicator on and turn right. You're going to take the third exit, go to the right. You're going to keep going up around the bend, the bend of the road past a specialty goods store. Go up the hill, keep going for about another kilometre. At the end of the, the road there, don't turn right of the lights, turn left instead. You're going to go past a grocery. You're going to go past a pet barn. You're going to go past a barber shop. You're going to go past a German sausage place that I really want to try one day. And then you're going to take the next left at the chemist. Once you go down that street, about halfway along, you'll see our house on the right. Pull in the driveway, knock on the door. We'll welcome you in. <laughs> or... I could have taken a leaf out of Jesus' book and have simply have said, come follow me. Much easier if I take a leaf out of Jesus' book. Uh, in Mark chapter 1, Jesus says these three simple words, and it is actually life-changing words for his hearers. Let's read it together. Mark chapter 1, uh, verse 16 says this. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake. They were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. And without delay, he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Jesus doesn't give instructions about how they're going to fish for people, what that looks like. 
He doesn't give them a strategic plan or a vision about how that's going to work. He doesn't give them a new philosophy of life to live out. He doesn't outline the responsibilities each one's going to have. He doesn't prepare the way with everything that they need in their toolkit or the techniques or the words they're going to say to do this thing, actually make it come to pass. He simply says, come follow me. And I think there's something in that for us today. Because it's important for us to grasp the enormity of these words for us. But it's also important to hear what it would have meant for those young fellows in Israel. See, when we casually just read these words, come follow me, we don't grasp what the words actually would have meant for these young fishermen in Israel. See, from the age of five, Jewish boys would be taught uh, that there's a philosophy in the, in the Jewish culture. We want to get every, all of our history, our story, our, our traditions packed into the minds and hearts of young men in the, the day. So that from the age of five, they would start school. This would be called Bet Safar. And for the whole idea here is that we spend day in, day out as they're schooling, uh, learning the traditions and knowledge about God and their people. So by the age of 10, it wasn't uncommon for these young boys to have kind of graduate their first part of primary school knowing the Torah or the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, if you're anything like me at the age of 10, I've got no hope of remembering what I had for breakfast that morning, let alone, uh, I think in my Bible, it's 480 pages worth of content in my Bible. That's a lot of content to remember, off by heart, as part of your own story. But see, by the age of 10, you could continue on with your study. So you'd go to the synagogue, and you'd begin to study in what's called the Talmud, the further studies under a rabbi who would begin to unpack further things, like the Psalms, the prophets, the histories, all the, what happened with the judges, uh, the wisdom literature, the prophets. All these things they would learn, they keep going through. And by the age of 14, bright Jewish boys could basically remember all the Old Testament. That's a lot, a lot, a lot of content to remember as a young boy. Definitely not something I could have done when I was about 14 or 15. By 15, this is where most boys would tap out, right? I'm done. I can't learn anymore. And they would go back to their family business. They go back to their families and take up the craft that their family had gathered as a family, whether it's fishermen or carpentry or whatever, and begin to put their hands to the trade there. Because if they couldn't remember everything in the Bible, they, hadn't no, they had no hope then of being called um, a, a disciple of a rabbi, which is the highest honour of the Jewish society. So they go back to their towns, they begin to provide for their families and begin to work to produce stuff for their community. But the brightest of the brightest Jewish boys, who were the smartest ones around, who had memorised all the Torah, had memorised all of the Old Testament, they would get to go on and be called under the special tutelage of a rabbi. And this was called studying the Midrash. Because they would basically walk under the, the, the wing or the, or the shadow of a rabbi. They'd follow that rabbi around and learn under his teachings. They'd actually get to sit under everything that rabbi did. They would come with him and follow him wherever he went and listen to the, the stories, how he lived his life, how they would unpack and debate the law together, how they would decide everything they've learnt for the past kind of 10, 15 years of their life, how they would apply that to their daily life day in, day out. They lived their life under the teachings of their rabbi and they would begin to model their entire life on the, on the rabbi they were following. They began to look like, smell like, taste like their rabbi, if that makes any sense. They be, their life began to be shaped entirely by the rabbi they were following. They did all this to hopefully model their life on their rabbi, but to also then one day be called a rabbi themselves and to call disciples of their own. So what does all this tell us about Simon, who's later called Peter, his brother Andrew, James, and John? 
Well, they're fishermen, right? So they're at their nets. They're still working in their family trade, which tells us they're not yet of marrying age either. So these guys are teenage boys, probably about 18 at the most. They're teenage boys working in the craft of their family, uh, and they're, they're fishermen. They're not the best of the best. They've not been able to memorize everything in Scripture. They've not been able to be called by a rabbi or a teacher. They've flunked out. They're high school dropouts, these guys. And at some stage, they've given up the hope of ever being called by a rabbi to personally follow a teacher, to, uh, to, to, to accept the highest call and honor of Jewish society. They're just fishermen, young teenagers. When suddenly, out of nowhere, comes a rabbi, and not just any rabbi, a rabbi who'd been getting a bit of his name for himself by doing miracles and healings around the countryside, something that's not so common in the day. Uh, and everything that's been happening in Judea has whispered its way through to where these fishermen are, and he comes up to these young boys and says these three words, come follow me. There's no test. There's no uh, uh, explanation of why they'd flunked out of high school. There's no scholarship fund needed. There's no way or age limit or no permission granted by their parents. And remember, they're teenage boys. It's weird that they'd send their kids off to be with a teacher. Uh, there's no thinking or planning about how their families will be provided for in their absence. There's no worrying about if they have all the right things or if they're prepared or if they're qualified to follow this rabbi. They're simply invited by Jesus saying, come follow me. Teenagers. Finally under the tutelage, under the, the wing of a rabbi. Can you see that for these teenage dropouts, this invitation from Jesus would have been absolutely everything for them. Everything for them. It's not just a come follow me and we kind of waltz on to the next thing. It's come and live my life. Come and live, under, live the way that I live. Come and, and see all that God is going to do in your life. They're invited into Jesus' story. They're invited under his teaching. It's a story where they saw miracle after miracle after miracle and the raw, unbridled power of God and eternal hope that their lives and the future and the future of their, king, of their people would be different. It's three years they're journeying with Jesus to see the kingdom of God begin to break through glimpses of heaven through the life and teachings and miracles of all Jesus said and did. To come follow me, was an invitation for young teenage boys whose only lot in life was to catch fish until they couldn't catch fish anymore. Calls them into a life that would completely transform their destiny. Come follow me is not also an invitation into the story where these teenagers experienced the darkest night of the soul when Jesus was arrested, betrayed and crucified. Come follow me wasn't and isn't an invitation into a perfect life. But it was and is an invitation into a life of meaning, of purpose, and of solidarity with the one who was crucified for their sin. It's also a story where Jesus' resurrection and victory over sin and death changes everything. They got to see it firsthand. Oh, to be a fly on the wall for those guys. They were there when the darkness of Good Friday shattered and broke into the glorious bride of Easter Sunday. These guys were fishermen and they were at the start of the church. Acts 4 tells us they were seen as ordinary men, but there is an incredible transformation going on in their life when Jesus simply said, come follow me. Come follow me is everything to these teenagers. It's everything. 
And I think it's important for us just to pause here for a second as we grasp how important this moment is, not just for them, but for our own life today. It's an invitation that Jesus extends to us right here in this room right now. Come follow me, he says. Come experience the life that he lived and the fullness of life that he calls us into right now. Come and know a peace that passes all understanding when the world and our hearts are full of anxiety. Come and see the world through his eyes, a world of wonder and opportunity to bring the good things of God from heaven to earth where we all might live just a little more lightly and a little more freely. Come and live in the truth that in the hardest and darkest moments of our life, Jesus is inviting us. He's walking with us. He's calling us. He's holding us. He's praying with and for us, even in this very moment. See, Jesus calls us to follow him, no matter what our own life looks like, no matter if we're qualified or if we're educated. He calls all people of all ages, of all nations, ethnicities, women, children, men of all ages. He invites us all with three simple words, come follow me. There's no strings attached. All we have to do is choose to follow the ways, the words and the works of Jesus. That's it. But there is more to this story than accepting this invitation just for ourselves and feeling good about that. See, after Jesus' resurrection, his last command to these disciples begins with him saying, all authority and on, heaven, on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I will be with you to the very ends of the age, he says. See, come follow me is not just an invitation for us to follow him. It's also a command for us to do the same for others. For every single one of us here in this room today to say to someone else, come follow him with me. In 1 Corinthians 11, chapter, in chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ or imitate me as I imitate Christ. Will you help others take this invitation by saying, come follow him with me? I'd love to introduce you today to a woman who did this for me. You'll see a photo on the screen of a wonderful lady called Mrs. Anne Diet. I never got to call her Anne though. To me, she was Mrs. Diet. I first met Mrs. Diet in grade four. She was my grade four religious instruction teacher. And Mrs. Diet was a masterful storyteller. This is an 18-year-old Brad, by the way. Um, not long before she passed away. Uh, she would be a, a master storyteller. She actually had this thing. It was like she'd pull out an easel on RI Tuesdays in the afternoon, put up a big felt board, and begin to tell stories with these felt characters she herself created, cut out, sewed, and, and created on her own, and would tell Bible stories by putting felt on the board. It sounds very old school, and it was. She was super old school. But even for a little grade four boy called Bradley in grade four, these stories came alive for me because she was a storyteller. Stories that I'd been hearing in Sunday school every week, week in, week out, came alive on that green felt board when she was telling the stories of Jesus sitting by the beach eating fish with his friends, of Jesus calling all the lost home to him, the fish, uh, the, the, the goats and the sheep. See, she made the Bible come alive for us in that class. 
and you knew you were in for a good time when she whipped out her felt, her felt board. Mrs. Dyer also happened to go to my church, and I didn't know this at the time. We only realised when I was in grade four because she would go to the eight o'clock service and I would go to the 10 o'clock service. Once we found out we were at the same church, Mrs. Dyer did something for me that I am forever thankful for. Week in, week out, without fail, Mrs. Dyer was there. She would seek me out between the services, grab my hand and say, Bradley, how's your faith with Jesus this week? For over a decade, Mrs. Dyer would grab my hand and say, Bradley, how was your faith with Jesus this week? And my answers, as from a little grade four boy all the way through teenage, teenage years, turned from good to actually having, oh yeah, that, I've got something to share with Mrs. Dyer here. We began to share stories every Sunday between our services about what God had been doing in my life and what God had been doing in hers. We struck up an intergenerational friendship, a, a meaningful friendship and relationship in my life that I'm so thankful for. And she would ask me, Bradley, how's your faith with Jesus this week? And I would answer honestly with her. She was a safe space for me because she decided to invest into me as a young guy, as a young boy. Not because I was anything special at the time, I'm not anything special now, but because she decided she wanted to spend her days reaching out to those of the next generation and by saying, how's your faith going this week? That question meant everything to me. Mrs. Dyke taught RI for decades. She was in her uh, early 90s when she had to finish up. So I went to visit her to have a cup of tea just to kind of talk about how she was feeling about finishing up. And she would tell me stories after stories uh, of what RI had meant to her, uh, of all the things she'd been... She actually told me a story of where she... Uh, I didn't know this about her until right at the, the, the end of her life, in her early 90s. She and her family escaped war in Eastern Europe. And get this, they walked, no joke, with their possessions on their back as a young family of four kids, two adults, across the whole continent of Asia. They walked across Asia, got, made their way down through the islands of Indonesia by boat to finally make it to Australia for a new life to escape war and poverty. She came here as a refugee and she would tell stories of her not knowing anybody but her family, not knowing any language, until she finally made her way to a little church in Ipswich that welcomed them in, taught them the language, they had a great uh, multi-generational church where they invested into Anne's life. Mrs. Diet said that, that people, those people who invested into her meant everything to her. She was saying that that community, that place that she was invested into, completely changed the story of her family's life, where they all came to faith. They all had a community to belong to and intergenerational connections. Unbelievable. I, I remember um, one time hopping to the shopping centre and I just randomly met her in the car park. Mrs. Diet, how are you? And we decided to walk into Woolies together. I kid you not, it took us, uh, it, there would have been about a dozen people who stopped Mrs. Diet to say, Mrs. Diet, I remember you from grade four religious instruction. These are grown adults. She'd been doing it for decades. There were kids who were in a grade four RI class at that stage going, hi, Mrs. Diet, like just wanting to say hi and show her things that were going on. She had a presence in the community because she invested into the kids' lives. And on that day when I visited her and she couldn't teach RI anymore, I had just started teaching RI in the local schools as well. And on that day, Mrs. Diet gave me a package that had her felt board and all her felt cutouts. Cut she said, Bradley, tell the next generation the story. Ah, oh, this woman who died in her mid-90s meant everything to me simply because she decided to say, Bradley, how's your faith with Jesus this week? 
I didn't deserve that. I was a little snotty kid kicking holes in walls at my church at the time. But she decided to invest into me because someone, a church community, had invested into her and she wanted the story to outlast herself. She wanted the story of God's good news to outlast herself. I'm here today in no small part because of Mrs. Dyke's faithfulness. Never underestimate the power of your encouragement for a young person. It is everything. It was everything to me. It is everything to those you're sitting next to today. It's everything to our kids in Kidlings and Kids Zone. Never underestimate your power of encouragement for a young person. It is everything to them. Who are you inviting into your life to experience the, trans, the love and power of the transforma transformational power of Jesus by saying, come follow him with me? How's your faith with Jesus this week, Bradley? We see this pattern of encouragement and discipleship and leadership happen all throughout Scripture, particularly in the book of Acts. If you flick through the book of Acts, you'll actually see around chapter 10, uh, you'll see paragraphs beginning with Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. See, Barnabas was an early church leader and he saw something in this young, new, young leader uh, uh, called Paul and decided to want to bring Paul under his wing and show him the ropes. Teach him a bit about what faith looked like teach him, give, and give him uh, significant opportunities to begin to explore his leadership and his faith. Um, see, he was a new convert and he needed some discipling. But they would go from town to town to town, uh, preaching the good news about Jesus. But every time they would do so, Barnabas would give Paul a little bit more opportunity, a little bit more time, a little bit more chance to outwork his gifting. There comes a point, uh, a turning point in chapter 13 of Acts. Something shifts. See, Paul has a deep word from the Holy Spirit on his heart that the good news of Jesus isn't just for the Jews. At this stage, it was only basically kept for the Jewish people. You could be a Christian if you were Jewish. But he had this burning word on his heart that it's not just for the Jews. It, this good news of Jesus is for everybody. And I'm thankful for Paul's heart in that today. We're here because of that. Make sure we have that in our mind today. But this burning thing in Paul's heart uh, is something that he can't stop talking about. And Barnabas goes, all right, Paul, you take the lead here. You preach. You tell this community about the good news of everyone. And Gentiles suddenly become saved. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. We hear Peter, same thing happening with Peter as well. There's a, God is on the move, and Paul begins to put at the front of it. Um, Barnabas encourages him, and suddenly all the stories from here on out, from Acts 13, begin to change. It becomes Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. See, Barnabas saw him, raised him, and set him loose. See, Barnabas then goes on to take another young disciple called Mark, and they go off one way. Paul is now a leader and decides he needs to call someone himself. He finds this young guy called Timothy and brings Timothy under his wing, just as Barnabas had done for him, and they set out. See, um, we get words uh, in, in, in our scripture of the words that Paul encouraged Timothy with. Timothy is this young leader. Uh, and being commissioned to the church in Ephesus. And Paul tells him things like this. When he's in jail, he writes this. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers, Timothy. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which lived first in your grandmother Lois and then in your mother Eunice, and I'm now convinced lives in you too. For this reason, I am reminded, I want to remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying out of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. 
So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Words from Paul, a man in jail, thousands of miles away, and takes the time out to write, lots of time actually, to write to this young guy called Timothy, who's a young leader in a church, to encourage him even in his absence, that you've got this, Timothy. We also read in 1 Timothy chapter 4 these amazing words. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. And this is where all the young people in the room go, let's, that's where the scripture should stop. Don't look down on me, guys. The Bible says so. Nya, nya. But it says this as well. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, Timothy, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come again, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through the prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This encouragement would have been everything to Timothy, who's trying to figure out how on earth does he lead a new church in a difficult place for the first time in history, in a place that's hostile to the gospel. I know that when I get encouragement from people like Mrs. Diet before she passed away, from family, from members of my own congregation, from, from people who I look up to, when they encourage me or write me a letter, it fills my tank. How much would this have filled Timothy's tank? Even when Paul's in jail, he takes the time out to fill his tank and encourage Timothy. See, Jesus invited 12 young leaders to follow him. He invested into their life and their leadership on the journey. Come follow me, he says. And he encourages them to go make disciples of all nations. The next generation of the church, Paul does the same. Uh, Barnabas invests into Paul. Paul invests into Timothy. And Timothy courageously shared the gospel and planted churches all across one of the toughest places of the toughest times in history. Paul invited Timothy to, to serve. He invested into his life and his leadership and he encouraged him to persevere in fulfilling God's eternal purposes. This pattern of invitation, investment and encouragement goes down through the history of the church and it's today it's our turn as Gateway Baptist to do exactly the same thing. See, at Gateway, we are committed to raising the next generation of Christ-centred leaders. Our generation's ministry do this, kids and youth and young adults. They do such a great job of it and I had the privilege of going to other churches and experiencing other churches' stuff. There's good stuff going on in the kingdom but there's something special happening here at Gateway. There really is. But... You don't have to wear a green shirt to invest into the next generation. You don't have to serve at youth on a Friday night to invest into the next generation. In fact, I would say you can't leave it up to those guys who are volunteering their time in that space. All of us, every single one of us, have an opportunity to share uh, an encouragement with the next generation. We have a lifetime in this room of wise reflections from Scripture of revelations of God from our own experiences and our own learnings, no matter how short or long they might have been so far. You, even your mistakes can teach. See, our generation's ministry here at Gateway are crying out to hear from voices other than just green shirts, people. To hear from you, your heart and your wisdom and ask the same question, how's your faith with Jesus just as Mrs. Diet asked me? That's why one of our five values is we raise tomorrow's leaders. There can be so many things we can value as a church. 
but raising generations of young people who courageously follow Jesus is part of their DNA. Right back, we've heard it the last few weeks of when Edwin Keith bought that little school, bought that little hall to teach Sunday school stuff to kids. It's part of our DNA from the very beginning. It's going to be part of our DNA till the day we're all dead. It's part of who we are. It's, and it's why it's one of our five core values today. See, down through the years, every senior pastor, everyone of our pastoral team, everyone who's a, a volunteer, everyone who's part of Team Gateway has done this. It's part of our DNA and it's got to continue on. We must never lose sight that this is part of who we are. Whose life are you investing into in the next generation? How can you encourage them to be all that God has called them to be, no matter what your age is here today? See, giving the keys of the kingdom to future generations grows the kingdom and helps us to grow young as a church. In their really well-researched book, Growing Young, uh, the writers from the Fuller Institute make uh, a few really key points. I'd love to unpack just six of those here today. They talk about six essential strategies that every church can do, but it's not just every church. It's every person. We are the church, right? So every person within the church can do to help us as the church grow younger rather than grow older. The first one is unlock keychain leadership. And this basically means, uh, if you think about chains and links in a chain, we've got to unlock the next chain before the chain comes along. We've got to be passing on and giving young people opportunities, genuine opportunities, to love, serve a world in need, to shape our church to reach the next generation, to make mistakes. This means realising that our young people have so much more to give to our church than we realise. See, they, they have more service, more passion, more innovation, more money, more creativity, more authenticity. Uh, they have more chances to reach the, their friends for Jesus than probably we do. We have to empower a generation to reach a generation. Number two, we need to empathise with today's young people. It's so easy for us to go, gee, I don't like their music today. <laughs> I don't like what they're wearing. I don't like the fact that they're... Uh, not around as much as they used to be, or they're going to hell in a handbasket. We we can do it. We have a habit of doing it. But if we're honest, if we're really honest today, each generation behind us, each generation is a product of the generation before. Instead of lamenting or criticising or pointing the finger, we need to empathise with our young people and be invested in them with our time and our love. Number three, we need to take Jesus' message seriously. We've heard a little bit about it this morning. And one of the reasons the next generation hasn't heard the good news is because we probably haven't taken the call as a generation above them to do it well, to disciple them. And I say this with all the love and conviction I can possibly muster as our discipleship pastor. If we're not making disciples, we're not really being a disciple. We're called to follow Jesus our master, our teacher, our rabbi. He commanded us to love God with all we've got, love our neighbor as as ourselves, and teach people all he's commanded him. As disciples, we have to be disciples who are making disciples. A disciple of Jesus must take the great commission we read earlier on seriously, and we must be disciples who make disciples. We all have to welcome young people into a Jesus-centered way of life where they see us doing that on the regular. It's a challenging, that one. Number four, we have to form a fuel a warm community, and we do this pretty well at Gateway. See, authenticity is the new relevant. No one wants to be relevant anymore. Authenticity is where it's at, and it's where it should have been at all along, if we're honest. Uh, I love that our church is a little bit daggy. 
I've had the privilege of going to other churches, and I'll explain this in a minute. I've been to a lot of different places over my time, and there's something wholesome and family and a bit daggy about Gateway that I just love. Like, I'm, I thought I had to wear boots today because I was visiting around the place. I thought that's like what preachers do. I'd rather be in sneakers. I'd rather be in my cons, like Corey down the front here. I'd much rather be in them today. We're a little bit daggy. Um, I'm definitely not the epitome of cool, that's for sure. Uh, but I love that as a family, we are an authentic community of ragtag rebels. Uh, and we have to find a way of creating that warm community where intergenerational friendships are fostered, like Mrs. Diet and mine, like many that I see in the room here today. How do we help intergenerational friendships uh, be formed and then flourish? Number five, we have to be the best neighbours. We just have to be the best neighbours. Jesus called, love your neighbour as yourself. We excuse me, have to show the world that we are just the best neighbours around. I've had a problem with my neighbours really recently, um, throwing parties at three o'clock in the morning. It's been hard to love my neighbours. Even we've just moved into this place, of like, why do we move here? It's hard to love our neighbours. We have to be the best neighbours. They had their fire alarm going off at 3am in the morning the other day. They didn't know how to turn it off. They just couldn't do it. So I popped up my pants, went for a bit of a walk around to the neighbours, knocked on the door, and they're like haggard. You could see it on their face, and they're like, I don't know whether it's because they were hung over or whether it's because they've been listening to this fire alarm go off for like four hours straight. I went across the, there, unscrewed it, took the battery out, went, happy to help. We have to be the best neighbours. We have to be the best neighbours. We have to show the people around us that we are the best neighbours by creating communities of places that show the extravagant love of Jesus, even when it's hard to do both locally and globally, because that is who we are. That is who we are as this church. Number six. And this is the, the what last one that we always get the most cop and flack from is the church, um, it, in the church, at least anyway. We have to prioritise young people and families everywhere. And I, I want you to hear this. It's always going to be the call, but what about the elderly? What about me? What about my needs? What about the things that the church should be providing for everybody, valuing the ones? And I don't know if we've heard, talked about valuing the ones in this campus yet, but we have that as part of our value too. And I want you to hear that we hear that. We do value the ones. We value every single one. But right now, there is a war going on for the hearts and minds of the next generation. We have a passion for pastoral care here, but there is a generation growing up right now in our community that has never heard the gospel. There's a spiritual war going on in control for the hearts and minds of the next generation, and they are searching for meaning more than ever before. They are searching for the love of community like never before, and largely they're not hearing it from us. They're hearing it and trying to find meaning and, and find their worth in their friendship groups, their, on social media. There is a vacuum going on where we should be speaking into their lives about their worth and their value as a child of God. They need to be hearing it from us rather than getting their ethics and their theology and theologizing on social media. We need to be present in their life and prioritize them in our hearts and minds. We need to show up uh, in their life and to raise the next generation of leaders. Because, if we're honest, we probably haven't done a great job of that as the church worldwide. In my previous role for another domination, I had the privilege of leading generations ministry across the whole state, so kids, youth, young adults. And every Sunday, I'd be in a different church across Queensland, praying with, uh, preaching with, uh, encouraging and coaching kids, youth, and young adults pastors. And in all those churches I would go to, uh, there were there are many churches that were clo sadly closing their doors in that denomination, in our denomination, and in every denomination across Australia right now. There are churches closing their doors because they've forgotten one important thing. 
And this is the, the key thing across all those churches closing their doors. You ready? They don't prioritise kids and youth and young adults' ministries. They've begun to do church for themselves. And that's a shame and a shock. And I'm glad we don't do that. It's part of our DNA here. We don't, we haven't done that. But we have to always have it at the forefront of our mind because churches are closing everywhere. They've stopped raising the next generation of leaders to courageously follow Jesus because they're more interested in meeting for themselves. They've started living and meeting for themselves rather than entrusting the keys of the kingdom to our kids and the next generation to lead us. It's a real tragedy. See, to grow young, we have to invest in the next generation and prioritize their faith. That's why we value it as a church. That's why I'm choosing to spend my life encouraging, training, equipping, mobilizing, praying for, and even laying down my own leadership for, and to give opportunities to young women and men who are coming behind us because they're gonna lead our kingdom into the future. And that future is tougher than ever before, which is why we need to raise a new generation of leaders to reach a new generation of disciples. If we show up and we raise the next generation of young leaders, we're going to see young people filled with the Holy Spirit, on fire for God with every spiritual gift uh, and blessing a world in need. We're going to see a generation, if we show up, whose hearts are burning with passion to see their friends and their families know the life-changing power of Jesus. A generation of disciples who are making disciples, who are making disciples. If we show up and invest in the next generation, we'll see a young generation who are artists and creatives worshipping God in new and exciting ways we never could have imagined before. They're going to connect people with culture and meet Jesus in the middle and come to faith. We're going to see young people practicing the traditions of our faith in humility and in, with reverence, uh, building a deeper connection to the divine. If we invest into young people, we're going to see a whole generation saying yes to investing back into God's people as leaders, as life group leaders, building authentic communities of faith that are deeply caring, that are more biblically literate than ever before. We're going to see young people who are invested, if we show up, whose hearts are gripped with the power of prayer, to get on their knees and pray for their friends, their family and their world, those who hunger and thirst after His presence. If we show up and invest in the next generation, we'll see them invest into the kingdom by caring for the poor, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked. They'll be sent to the four corners of the earth beyond these four walls where every cry of oppression is loud and the song of poverty is deafening. People will be sent, young people will be sent to lead the kingdom of God in every darkest corner of the nations. Only if we show up, if we invest into their life, grab them by the hand and say, how is your faith with Jesus going this week? How are we investing? We need to raise a new generation of leaders to break new ground for Jesus, to reach a new generation of disciples and advance God's kingdom in this uncertain age. We have to be investing in those who are sitting here right now. Those who are in our, in our kids' ministries this morning, our people in green shirts leading them right now. Encourage, invest, care for, love, give opportunities to help them to lead. Them, to lead. 
See, the power of your prayer for a young person is everything. How often do you pray for those in your church? And I want to ask us today to prayerfully invest in them as we begin to worship. The kids are actually going to come back in in a minute. They're going to come and sit in their families. And we're going to pray for them in a minute. But we're going to spend some time worshiping first because I want us to think about two questions. I want you to think about this. Who's your one up and who's your two down? And by this, I mean, who's your one up? Mrs. Diet was my one up for a long time. She invested into me. She spoke words of hope and encouragement into my life. We're likely here today because someone has encouraged us to come or has invested into our life. Who's your one up? Who's that one person who's invested in, encouraged you? Think about that person right now. Maybe choose to give them a call this week. Let them know how much their encouragement has meant to you. Flick them a text or even write them a letter like Paul did. Do something out of the box for that person who's your one up and let them know, but also maintain that relationship. Stay connected to that person that you might continue to be encouraged in your faith at any stage of your journey. If you can't think of someone right now or if that person for you is no longer with us, like Mrs. Dye, it's not like for me. We'll spend some time in worship in a minute asking God to show us who's your one up because we all need a one up, not just at one time in our life, but across our whole life. Who is your one up? But who's your two down? Who are two people younger than you that you can choose today to invest into and encouraging with your life? To do just as Jesus did, invite them into your space in your life, invite them for over a cup of tea like Mrs. Diet did for me. Spend time with them, invest into them, encourage them, write them a letter. I've got letters from mentors in the past that I have in a folder that I pull out every now and then. I read and am re-encouraged. Everyone can do it. We all have the capacity to find two young people and younger people in the faith to encourage and love on them. And if you can't think of that person right now or those people right now, use this time we're about to worship to ask God to show you. There'll be kids walking back in the room as we sing. Maybe God will highlight one of you that you want to invest into. But as a church family, we have to raise the next generation of young leaders because the church depends on it. The church depends on how we raise the next generation. So I want to invite you to stand right where you are right now. And we're going to sing. But I want to invite you just right where you are, just to close your eyes and, and reach out your hands in front of you as a posture of saying, Jesus, show me right now. Who's my one up? How can I connect with them this week? And who's my two down? Who are the people you're wanting me to invest into as part of the value of our church, as part of the value of your kingdom, Holy Spirit, to invest and to raise the next generation of leaders? Let's worship together. We hope you've been blessed by this message. We are a growing family and we'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services because everyone who comes through our doors is welcome. You can find out more about our community and locations at gatewaybaptist.com.au. 